Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for giving us your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to understand it this morning, understand more of the magnificence of Christ so that we don't live with fear, but so that we trust him and serve him and live faithful, joyful lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read to you from an article that I read during the week. Uh, let me quote. If you're under 40, you're probably not going to die. These are the words of esteemed futurologist Dr Ian Pearson. He believes human beings are very close to achieving immortality. Dr Pearson says that there are a number of different ways that we could live forever. First, scientists could swap out your ageing body parts with younger man-made replacements. Second, we could link our brains to the machine world. The mind will basically be in the cloud and you'll be able to use any android or robot that you feel like to inhabit the real world. Or third, we could eternally inhabit computer-made worlds. If our minds are online, we could all live in a computer simulation, according to Dr Pearson. If you're online all the time, you could have a fantastic life. It would all be virtual, so you could have anything you want. Dr. Pearson concludes, most of your readers are probably going to live forever. Interesting stuff, don't you reckon? Can you imagine being able to replace your body parts as they get old? I've already got a few in need of replacement. It'd be quite nice, uh, I reckon. Um, imagine being able to attach your brain to a robot. Or, 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 or attach your brain to a virtual world. Can you imagine, therefore, never dying, living forever? Interesting thought. Of course, as I speak, it's only a, a pipe dream. The death rate, as far as I'm aware, continues at 100%. And... Uh, well, we're only seeing that all the more clearly with the current coronavirus pandemic, aren't we? And in our studies in the book of Genesis, we've seen how it is the death came into this world. God said to Adam, Genesis 2.17, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And so God said to him, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God cursed the world. God sentenced Adam to die. That's how death came into this world. And, and, and now in this next section... Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to follow a history of Adam's family line. That's what the heading says. It's the written account of Adam's family line. And what we're going to see is that this death sentence pronounced upon Adam doesn't just apply to Adam and Eve. It transfers through the generations. With one exception. For every person it's the same. They live, they have children, and they die. Now they live a long time, these ancient people, if we've understood these numbers rightly, they lived much longer than we do, but the point is they don't live forever. They are mortal. And so the story for each person ends the same way forwards. 
and then he died. As the chapter begins, we're reminded that it should not have been this way. God made people in his image. He, he blessed people. He didn't make people to suffer and die. We were supposed to live forever in joyous Sabbath fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. It's up here as well. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. Human beings were created for blessing, for eternal fellowship. But now as we look at the line of Adam, we see a very different story. Adam, I mean, it starts off a little bit hopeful. Do you remember uh, Seth was born, the third son after Cain and Abel. And in his time, people started to call on the name of the Lord. And, and, and here we see that Adam had a child in his own image, which... You kind of hope, well, if Adam was in the image of God and now Seth is in the image of Adam, well, well, maybe the curse will end. Maybe this death penalty will finish with Adam and Eve. But first we see that Adam died, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. What God said came true. The devil was lying. And then as we come to the end of the story of Seth, any hope we might have had is dashed because there's no end to the curse and death still reigns. Seth lived and had children and then he died. Verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh, after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years. And then he died. Same for Seth's son, Enosh. Same for his son, Kenan. Same for his son, Mahalalel. Same for his son, Jared. Every story ends the same way. And then he died. Verse 9. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years. And then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years. And then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years. And then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years. And then he died. Are you getting the picture? We now meet just one amazing exception to the rule, one of perhaps only two exceptions in the entirety of human history. Uh, Enoch, he, he walked faithfully with God. He, he spent his life trying to please God, trying to obey God, trying to love God, and God spared him from death. He didn't keep on living on earth, but God spared him from death. Verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. One amazing exception. But then it's back to the same old pattern. Now, Methuselah and Lamech, they meet the same fate as everyone else. And then he died. Uh, but then at the end of the genealogy here, again, there's, there's, there's a hopeful note. Uh, Lamech has a son called Noah. And Lamech, he hopes that Noah's going to be the one. He hopes that Noah's the one who will remove the curse of God. Noah's the one who might break this curse of death. Noah might be the one who brings this just roundabout of struggle and death to an end. Verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. That, by the way, is the same name, but different person to the Lamech we met last week. Remember him, the guy with two wives with the poem and everything? Different person, same name. Um, after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, the Methuselah lived a total of 969 years. Uh, the longest one recorded, that's why Methuselah is famous. But how does it end? And then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 770 years. And then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's where chapter 5 and the genealogy end on this hopeful note. Maybe it'll come to an end with Noah. Then as we come into chapter 6, a pretty weird thing happens, pretty strange. Uh, sons of God see that human women are attractive. We don't really know who these sons of God are. If you've done the Bible study, if you're going to do it next week, you'll see the number of possible alternatives from Scripture. But quite possibly, they're some kind of angelic beings, these sons of God. But whatever they are, the dads of these daughters agree to allow them to marry. They're allowed to marry anyone they choose. Because that's how it worked back then. Girls didn't choose who they married. Their dads decided. So what's going on? What are these dads doing? Why would a dad allow his daughter to be married to a son of God? Well, let's think about the context. What's been the great hope? From Seth through to Noah, the great hope is we can break this curse, break this pattern. The great hope is that we can live forever, defeat death. From the context, my guess is this is an attempt to gain immortality. Similarly, if you look at God's response, which we'll see in a second, again, I think this is an attempt to stave off death, to break the curse. Maybe if my daughter can marry a son of God, well, my grandchildren will live forever. But God does respond. He says, you are mortal. And you'll get the opposite of what you want. If you keep trying to find life outside of me, instead of living longer, God says you will live shorter lives. Now it's a maximum of 120 years. Chapter 6 and verse 1. 
When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. You know, in Australia, the average lifespan has been increasing. For all our medical and technological developments, we are extending our lives. Back in uh, 1960, the average lifespan for an Australian was 71. Uh, in 2016, the average lifespan for an Australian was 80 and a half. Uh, we've managed to extend our lives by 10 years, 3,600 days. What an amazing achievement. But sadly, God's sentence on humanity has proved to be entirely true, hasn't it? Even today, it's incredibly uncommon for anyone to live beyond 120 years. Uh, since they've been um, independently verifying people's ages with birth certificates and all that kind of stuff, the oldest person whose age was ever recorded was a lady called Jean Comment. Uh, she lived from 1875 to 1997 in France. See, parents, eating those snails is fine. Uh, she died at the age of 122 years and 164 days. Oldest person living in the world today, a lady called Kane Tanaka. She's from Fukuoka in Japan. And in January, she just celebrated her 117th birthday. Oldest person in Australia, Dexter Kruger. In January, apparently these January people are the ones who live the longest. In January, he celebrated his 110th year. You see, God's edict here still stands. Thousands of years later, it's still true. For all our technology, it's still true. For all our development in medical um, science and so on, it's still true. There is no one on this earth today who's made it to 120. Do you know what that means? It means it doesn't matter what you do. A mere 120 years, and it goes fast, doesn't it? A mere 120 years after you are born, you will almost certainly be dead. Next, here in Genesis, we hear about the Nephilim. Again, we don't really know who the Nephilim are in context here. I guess they were the offspring of these sons of God and daughters of men. Uh, we know from the book of Numbers that they were very big giants. And uh, we see here that they were heroic warriors. But the fact remains, they were mortal. They were just men. They were men of renown, yes, but they were men of old. They're dead. Uh, certainly they weren't rock monsters, just in case you were wondering and you watched that movie about uh, Noah, the Russell Crowe movie. No one seems to have seen it. Um, but humanity's attempt to seek for immortality by being united with the sons of God, it failed. You will not meet a Nephilim today. None of them are alive. The Nephilim were men. And like everyone else, the Nephilim died. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Well, as the story continues, people, look, they continue to ignore and reject the only one who can give them life. 
They long to break the curse, they, they hope for immortality, but they continue to reject the only one who can give them life to the point where God looks at the world and he doesn't see that it's very good anymore. And no, no, God looks at the world and he sees that people have become thoroughly wicked. And God decides to time up. Time up. Certainly not going to give me mortality. In fact, that's it. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the land. They will all die. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? Sad stuff. I mean, this makes the coronavirus look very tame by comparison. But as we come to the end of the section, we see just another faint glimmer of hope. It's one person who's pleasing to God, one person who has favour with God, and it's, it's Noah. Verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, can you see what's here then in this, in this uh, section? We're following Adam's family line. Adam was created in the image of God. He was created to be in blessed Sabbath fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden with access to the Tree of Life. Adam was created for eternity. But as we've seen over these last few weeks, Adam sinned against God and now here we see the dreadful legacy. As we follow Adam's family line, Everyone dies. One exception, Enoch, but for everyone else, it all, ends the, it all ends the same way. And then he died. They hope for immortality. They were built for immortality. And they hope and they long and they dream of immortality with Seth and with Noah. And they even breed with sons of God to try to gain immortality. But in their rebellion against God, in their trying to do it in their, by themselves without reference to God, they just make things worse. Life gets shorter. Until God finally decides that's it and decides to wipe them out completely. All right. All right, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves as Christians. Uh, two points to make. Two points. Now, first, we're going to die. We're going to die. We can, try, we can try anything we like to avoid it, but we're not going to succeed. We will die. Second point, and this is the second point for us as Christians as we come to the New Testament, we know that there is a cure for death. A cure that means we can live without fear. A cure that means that we can live with hope. A hope that is noticed so that, so that, uh, so that it's a hope that we can offer to a dying world. Two points. We will die, but there is a cure. Let's think about the first point first. We will die. Now, ever since Adam, people have hoped that they won't die. Ever since Adam, people have tried all kinds of things to avoid death, and we're still doing it. Look at us. In one sense, it's fair enough. I mean, death is not natural. It's not part of life, as they try to say. It's not something to be embraced. Death is an enemy. It's a curse. It's unnatural. It's not what we were made for. 
fight it, fair enough. But, but the fact is, you're not going to win. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Now, contrary to what the esteemed Dr. Pearson says, we will all die, even if we're under 40, even if we wash our hands, even if we practice social distancing, even if we go to the gym, even if we eat vegan, even if we use wrinkle cream, we're still going to get wrinkly and we're going to die. Uh, even if we attach ourselves to robots, even if we replace our bits with prosthetics, even if we put our brains online, eventually it's all going to come to an end. The earth itself will eventually come to an end. The sun will burn out, we'll get hit by a meteor, something else will happen and everyone will die. And friends, as we face this coronavirus, it should remind us of the fact there is something much worse facing this world. One pastor in Singapore puts it this way. Headlines that regularly ratchet up the local and global death counts should be daily reminders of our mortality, forcing everyone to look beyond the routines of life and to consider what lies beyond. We will all someday die by COVID-19 or otherwise. Here's point number one. We will die. Nothing we can do to stop it. But that brings us to point number two. Point number two. There is a cure for death. As any good doctor will tell you, the key to finding the right cure is to rightly diagnose the disease. And the answer is here, isn't it? In the book of Genesis for us. What's the cause of death? It's not coronavirus. It's not old age. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's not car accidents. What is the cause of death? Death is the judgment of God on human sin. That's the cause. It's God's judgment on Adam's sin. It's God's judgment on our sin. We are living in rebellion against the God who gives life that's why we're going to die, every one of us. Uh, another Singapore pastor, Edmund Chan, he puts it this way. He says, the world has a virus infection that is far greater than all the viruses we've ever known throughout its history. That virus is sin. And with this virus, there is absolutely no immunity, no survivors, and no hope. And it infects 100% of humanity no one is spared. Friends, that's the disease. That's the disease to be really scared of. And friends, there's only one cure. Now, I guess you could try like Enoch to walk with God all your life perfectly. And historically, though, your chances of success are very limited. Um, only two successes so far in the entirety of human history. But realistically, for you and for me, there's only one cure. John 3.16 says it beautifully, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not die, shall not perish, but have eternal life. The cure is Jesus, friends. The cure is Jesus. It's in his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus himself said it this way, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. In Jesus there's the cure, because in Jesus there is forgiveness of our sin. And so in Jesus there is the cure for death. And so friends, as the Apostle Peter put it, we don't have to fear what other people fear. Or, or as the author 
to the Hebrews put it, we can be free from our slavery to the fear of death. Free from our slavery to the fear of death. Is that what you're saying out there? Slavery to the fear of death? That's what I'm saying. Friends, this should make a difference. At a time like this, and at any time. In August of 1527, a deadly plague struck the German town of Wittenberg, far more deadly than COVID-19. Christian reformer Martin Luther was living in the city. And many of uh, Luther's fellow citizens, they ran away for their lives. Uh, but Luther chose to stay and to minister to the people. Now, Germans from other cities and towns, they were mocking and criticizing, crit criticizing the Wittenbergers for fleeing, because, of course, they're spreading the disease everywhere. And one German pastor wrote to Martin Luther, and he asked him, how should pastors behave when facing such a plague? In reply, Luther wrote a paper um, with a name that tells you exactly what he's writing about. The paper is called whether one may flee from a deadly plague. This is a very um, carefully argued and nuanced paper. It doesn't just give blanket rules or anything. It thinks carefully about different kinds of people, what their different responsibilities are in different contexts and situations. But, but, but at, one point, at one point in the paper, uh, Luther, he, um, he talks about the hope that we can have in the face of the fear of death. Now he says, quoting from Hebrews, that it is, it is the devil who uses the fear of death to enslave us. And so he's got a reply to the devil. Now, I'm not counselling you to talk to the devil, but, but, but nevertheless, what he says, I think, is incredibly helpful, particularly in this time of fear and uncertainty. So let me quote at length from Martin Luther. He is such a bitter, knavish devil that he not only unceasingly tries to slay and kill, but also takes delight in making us deathly afraid, worried and apprehensive so that we should regard dying as horrible and have no rest or peace all through our life. And so the devil would excrete us, excrete us out of this life as he tries to make us despair of God, become unwilling and unprepared to die, and, under the stormy and dark sky of fear and anxiety, make us forget and lose Christ, our light and life, and desert our neighbour in his troubles. We would sin thereby against God and man. That would be the devil's glory and delight. Because we know that it is the devil's game to induce such fear and dread, we should arm ourselves with this answer to the devil. Get away, you devil, with your terrors. Just because you hate it, I'll spite you by going the more quickly to help my sick neighbour. No, you'll not have the last word. If Christ shed his blood for me and died for me, why should I not expose myself to some small dangers for his sake and disregard this feeble plague? If you can terrorise, Christ can strengthen me. If you can kill, Christ can give life. If you have poison in your fangs, Christ has far greater medicine. Should not my dear Christ, with his precepts, his kindness and all his encouragement, be more important in my spirit than you, roguish devil, with your false terrors in my weak flesh? God forbid. Get away, devil. Here is Christ, and here am I, his servant in this work. Let Christ prevail. Amen. Don't make them like they used to, do they? 
Friends, contrary to what Dr. Pearson says, you are nowhere near achieving immortality and you never will be on your own efforts. But in Jesus alone there is glorious hope. In him there is forgiveness of sin and the cure for death. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary mercy in counteracting the curse of sin and death in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that in him we can look forward to immortality. And so we pray in response that you help us not to fear what other people fear. Help us not to be enslaved by the fear of death. Help us instead to live lives of hope, such hope that is noticed by the world, so that we then have to give an account for the hope that is in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>